Good morning. Last week, Rick covered the life of a man who was um, easily discouraged in his lifetime, the life of Thomas, the apostle. Today, we're going to look at a man who we could say was um, something of the opposite. He was actually known for being an encourager. We're going to look at the life day of Barnabas. Let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. It's chapter 4 that Barnabas first makes his appearance. Let's start reading from uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We'll read up to verse 37. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated, son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet." Barnabas was an apostle, we later learn. He was a teacher and a preacher. Where he's introduced here, he's called son of encouragement. Encouragement was something that, if we could put it this way, was a trademark of his life. It was something he was known for. He was an encourager. Let's talk for a moment about what it means to encourage. The Greek word used in this um, passage when it says son of encouragement, is paraclesis. It's also used of the word comfort, of consolation, and of exhortation. It's a calling to one side. If I'm encouraging you, I'm coming to your side. There's many people out there in the world who need encouragement. And Rick talked um, some about this last week. I'd like to think for a little while, but what, does, what makes people get discouraged? Oftentimes, when we get discouraged, we're looking at our current circumstances and not at the Lord. It can be something that can happen to us. It can be a illness. It can be a setback. Maybe I've lost something. Maybe I've lost a job. Maybe I've had death in the family. I've lost someone dear to me. All those things can get you discouraged. Or maybe it's something that's not happening. Maybe you get discouraged because perhaps you've been praying for a long time for something. Perhaps you've been praying for many years and years for someone to be saved. And they seem no closer to coming to the Lord than when you first started praying for them. Or maybe you've been laboring at something, working at something for years and years. And for all the blood, sweat, and tears you put into this, it seems like you see no fruit from your labors. Or maybe you're a single person hoping to be married. And it seems like you see people younger than you being married. You see your friends being married, and yet nothing happening to you. 
people can all get discouraged by these things. Things are not meeting your expectations of what you think should be happening. What does it mean to encourage someone then? First thought that often comes to mind when we think of encouragement is, well, you're coming to someone in a hard time and you're coming there alongside them to make them feel better. And that's certainly part of it, but that's not all of it. What should happen as a result of encouragement is that the person I'm encouraging should be strengthened spiritually. They should be edified. If a person's become discouraged and they've taken their eyes off the Lord and his word and their eyes are fixed on the current circumstances, then if I want to really encourage them, I want to remind them of the Lord and his word and turn them away from the from their circumstances, and to the Lord. It's not just that encouragement is just for someone who's downhearted and depressed. You can encourage someone for taking action. Say you have a person who is already doing things for the Lord. Well, if you encourage that person, give them encouragement, they might be spurred on to do even greater things for the Lord. And we should be like that. We should be encouraging one another, looking for opportunities to encourage one another. And encouragement can take many forms. You could say it has many different mediums. It can be a phone call. It can be a note. It can be a visit. Or it can be an action. That is, if you see someone doing something great for the Lord, you know, when I see someone doing something great for the Lord, I think to myself, well, you know, that believer has and me have a lot of things in common. You know, I should be doing something like that too. Let's take a look at the first person we see Barnabas encouraging. Let's turn to chapter 9 of Acts. Chapter 9, verse 20. This is talking about Saul. Saul has just been saved on the road to Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now we see here 
Saul arriving in Jerusalem in verse 26, he's not very welcome. Now, the, probably, perhaps the believers at Damascus had not gone to communicate to those believers in Jerusalem that Saul was really now a believer. So when Saul comes along to Jerusalem, the believers in Jerusalem may have been thinking this is probably Saul's latest new tactic to try and destroy the church. He's trying to gain our trust and deceive us, and he's going to turn on us. And so, you know, people avoid him. And we don't know how Saul was feeling at this time. You know, Saul, Saul may well have been discouraged. And here he had a number of people trying to kill him, perhaps people who formerly were close to him among the Jewish people. And the people that he wanted to be with, the other believers, didn't want to be close to him. But where everyone else saw someone to be feared and avoided, Barbas came up to him and drew alongside him. Where everyone else saw a soul that, where everyone else saw someone that was to be feared and avoided, Barbara saw a soul that needed encouragement. And what this makes me think about is how, you know, oftentimes it's not easy to approach someone who needs encouragement. <coughs> a discouraged person really may not be easy to, be, to approach or be around. Oftentimes a discouraged person may be in a very foul mood. They might be very angry. I mean, you don't want to get near them. Or it could be you just don't know how to approach that person. Like, say, a person has just had a great loss in their life or maybe they've lost more than one loved one recently. And sometimes saying, I'm sorry, just seems so inadequate. You know, what do you say to someone to encourage them, to comfort them? And sometimes... You might be tempted on giving up on encouraging someone. Perhaps someone seems to need encouragement so often, seems to need so much assurance, they seem to get downhearted so easily, we get tired of coming up to them. It could be easy to give up on someone. Now, good encouragement can take a long time. Not much later, we see Barma's skin in Acts chapter 11. We're going to read verses 19 through 26. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. 
Now, we really see Barnabas living up to his name in this passage. We have a young church being established in a city far away from Jerusalem, and the apostles possibly sent Barnabas out to help out this new young church and make sure they were properly established. And the Lord really gave Barnabas fruit from his labors. And right after describing how Barnabas encouraged them and describing Barnabas' character, it said that, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And yet, even though he's seeing some fruit from his labors, he does something you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily do in the first place. He actually leaves. He goes to find Saul and Tarsus. And you know, that's, in those days, that's not really a close journey. That's probably about two or 300 miles. That took a long time making a round trip from Tarsus to back to Antioch. And there, I think Barbas probably had a couple reasons for doing this. First off, he probably remembered how Saul preached boldly in Jerusalem. He saw someone who had a lot of potential who could be used by the Lord to help further the work in Antioch. But not just that, he was probably thinking also of Saul's sake too. We don't know what Saul was doing in between that time when he had gone back to Tarsus and in between this time that Barnabas had called him to his work. Maybe he was feeling a little set aside. But Barnabas saw a soul that could be used mightily by the Lord, and he wanted to encourage Saul in that ministry he had seen him starting in, in the preaching he had started in. Let's turn later to in the chapter, chapter 12 and verse 25. And going into verse into chapter thirteen, this is where we see Barnabas and Saul really involved, um, really as a team now engaged in active work. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers: Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now keep a little bookmark in your mind by that uh, person named um, John, whose surname was Mark. We'll get back to him later. Now, unfortunately, I'd like to, but we don't have time to go through the many adventures that Barnabas and Paul had. As they went, they went to Cyprus, they went to Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra, preaching the gospel. We're going to have to leave that for future weeks. They ministered together for a number of years, though. But I would like to take note of um, one part of their journey in Acts 13.13. Just a little ways down. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, this is a big transition that actually occurs in this verse, and I'm not talking about the transition of Saul becoming Paul, not the name change, and not the fact that John left them at this point. But looking at um, just how that party is, is addressed, Paul and his party. 
Now, when did it, when does it become Paul and his party? Actually, up until this point, we see the two of them, Barnabas and Saul, being referred to as Barnabas and Saul. It's Barnabas who was a leader of the two. But then, all of a sudden, we have Paul and his party. And really, from this point on, if you look throughout the rest of chapter 13 and chapter 14, you're actually going to see a little reversal in the name order. You're going to see Paul and Barnabas. And really, what we see from this point on, Paul takes the lead in the ministry. When it comes to preaching and teaching, we see Paul doing most of the speaking. Okay, well, now that Barnabas seems relegated to the secondary role in the mission in this work, you know, what can we still learn from him? And actually, there's a lot we can learn from him. Because what's very visible, what we can say, what's what we can really learn is from what we do not see in Barnabas' life at this point. Because we see on his part, we see no envy, we see no jealousy on his part towards Paul. And this is a situation where it could be very easy for someone to get envious or jealous. And here we have a much older, experienced man in the work of God. And here it seems like a younger man is taking over his ministry. And it could be very tempting to get jealous or envious in a position like this. And sometimes we can get possessive in the work of God. Perhaps it's a Bible study. Perhaps it's a ministry in the chapel. Perhaps it's just witnessing to someone. You know, part of us would like to take sole credit for what the Lord's doing. Like we would like to say, it was I who led that person to the Lord. Or this is a ministry I'm in charge of. Or this is a Bible study I'm leading. Of course, it's really the Lord's work. It's not mine at all. But it can be very tempting for us to want to have our hands too tight around the certain work we're doing. And perhaps we don't want to involve a younger person in the work because, or, or another person that we recognize might be very helpful and needed in the work because we're worried that that person might overshadow us with their talents or abilities. But that's not the case we see with Barnabas. And for Barnabas, it didn't, it didn't matter that Paul was taking over in terms of leading the ministry. What he held most important was that the Lord's work be done, that the Lord be glorified, not that he, Barnabas, be a prominent man in the work. Now, what Barnabas was doing, what Barnabas was doing really wasn't easy here. You know, I'm not saying it was easy in the first place, um, you know, satisfying, setting aside all he had, selling his lands, to commit everything he had to the work of the Lord. But then there's, here's something that's also very hard. Here Barabbas is pretty much saying, I'm going to set aside my place in the ministry and, take, and do all I can to take the second place, the less noticed place, and do all I can to support the person who's really at center stage. Speaks of that verse really, um, he must increase, but I must decrease. Speaking of the Lord, how he must increase in our lives. And Barnabas really lived this verse out. Now, eventually, Barnabas and Paul, they go their separate ways. That's not under the best of circumstances. 
Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. Verse 36. And just getting back to that uh, book, little mental bookmark I asked you to place on the name of John Mark. John Mark was that worker that had initially gone out with Barnabas and Paul. Then he had left early on to go back to Jerusalem. So starting in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that, that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Paul and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, a lot of times we focus in this passage about how sad that split was between Barnabas and Paul. And of course, it is sad to see you know, two men of the Lord who were together for so many years doing the work of the Lord just part ways and probably, um, and really, probably angrily and sharply. But let's take a little moment at how John Mark was doing. John Mark, at this point, he had plenty of reasons to feel discouraged. Perhaps he felt ashamed. Perhaps he felt like, yes, I had been a, I had been a quitter. He probably had some idea of what Paul thought of him, especially after Paul and Barnabas parted ways. And perhaps a part of him thought to himself, you know, probably, perhaps Paul's right about me. I have failed the Lord. I had this chance to serve the Lord and I blew it. I don't deserve another chance to serve him. You know, how could I possibly be used by the Lord? in any way again. And a lot of people would have given up on John Mark. But where other people saw a failure, Barnabas saw a soul that needed encouragement. We don't know how much time Barnabas spent with John Mark, but just guessing from what we see of Barnabas working in the life of Paul. I think he probably spent a number of years with him. And we know that later, John and Mark would become someone greatly used by the Lord. The gospel of Mark penned by him, I get that bears witness to that fact. Then we have later, in Paul's own words, I'm just going to read this verse from 2 Timothy 4.11. This is what... The Apostle Paul says about John Mark much later. Get Mark and bring him with you. This is, this is Paul sending a letter to Timothy. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And no doubt, 
John Mark became this man greatly used by the Lord in no small part due to the encouragement of Barnabas. And, from, and uh, from this point in chapter 15 of Acts, actually Barnabas passes from sight. We don't really see him mentioned again in Acts. Now, I don't know about you, but I often kind of wondered, what did Barnabas say to be an encouragement to, to people? And we see many instances where he encouraged people, where he encouraged Paul, where he encouraged John Mark, where he encouraged the saints at Antioch. I wonder, what did he say to so many people that made him come to be known as the son of encouragement? It's kind of interesting, though. We actually don't see those words at all. We can look for how, I mean, we see Paul encourage many people, but we never actually see his actual words when he encouraged others. Well, there's plenty of examples we can look at in Scripture where we can see, you know, what, what's a good example of how I can encourage or comfort someone. So let's turn um, to the book of 1 Peter. There's a few books on the right hand. First Peter was written to some people who were likely feeling very discouraged, feeling very beaten down by the circumstances. You can put some serious weight and power into your encouragement when you put, use some well-placed scripture. Turn a person's eyes from their circumstances and, what, and turn their eyes back to the Lord. Just give you a little background. Actually, let's start reading. Let's just read the first four verses of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, Peter's writing in verse 1, he's writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, who are these people? What is the dispersion? Well, Peter is writing to believers who've been scattered abroad by persecution. These were very hard times that these believers were going through. He's writing to believers who may may have lost many things in their life. They may have lost some loved ones. They may have have lost their homes. They may have lost all the material possessions. They may have been fleeing for their lives. They were suffering greatly. A lot of the book of 1 Peter is about how a believer should endure suffering. But before Peter even goes into suffering for righteousness' sake, which he goes into later in the book, or what it means to partake of Christ's suffering, he looks at comforting and encouraging the believers. Now, how does he, how does he do this? He does this by taking their, 
the believer's eyes off their current circumstances and looking to what the Lord has in store for them in eternity. And he starts off right in verse 3. He reminds the believers of the inheritance they have. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Okay, well, say perhaps you were someone in these times that had lost everything you had. But then suddenly you're reminded by Peter of what you do have in the Lord, that you have an inheritance incorruptible. You have something that will never be devalued, that's never going to rust or that can, that's incorruptible. You have an inheritance that's undefiled. It's absolutely pure. It's absolutely perfect. You have an inheritance that does not fade away. It's eternal. And not just that. I mean, if you've had everything taken away from you, but it's reserved in heaven for you. It's in a safe place, the safest place possible in heaven, and it's for you. And I don't know about the rest of you, but often when I'm discouraged, I forget about how much I have as a believer in the Lord. And suddenly when I see, when someone really shows me a verse like this and goes through it with me, I think, oh yeah, I do have a lot in the Lord. How can I forget? It's a reminder like this about how truly rich a believer is in the Lord causes this discouragement to fade away. It goes a lot with how Paul says in Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Good encouragement can put things in proper perspective. And by the way, I haven't preached this. I haven't, I'm not up here because I feel like I'm a pro at encouragement or that I'm an extremely good encourager in any way. A lot of this, you know, I've, I have to say among the saints here at Calvary, I've been on the receiving end many times of encouragement. I'm very thankful for it. There have been many Barnabases here in my life. I'm very thankful for giving encouragement in much-needed times. One final way we can look at Barnabas. Actually, I was talking to Andy, my housemate, a little about this, him being a chemist. In chemistry, there's some reactions that use what's called a catalyst. It's a substance that um, can cause or accelerates a chemical reaction. When I look at at Barnabas, Barnabas, he's like the catalyst in the major chain reaction. He had a major effect on the lives of Paul and John Mark. And Paul and John Mark, in turn, they would have a huge effect and and do great things for the Lord in their own lives and throughout the whole world. And where has this gospel of Mark not gone? Or where have the epistles of Paul not gone? What would have happened if Barnabas had never come into Paul's life? Or what had happened? What would have happened if Barnabas had never encouraged John Mark? Encouragement can be like a catalyst. It's not just like, encouragement's not just making someone feel better when they're down. It can really cause someone to pursue a course of action for the Lord through encouragement. 
if there was no one providing encouragement, it's very possible that a lot of people with those gifts of preaching or teaching or evangelism, they might not be used. And we can think of encouragement like adding fuel to a fire. Like by encouraging a brother or sister, you can cause them to burn brighter for the Lord, do greater things for the Lord. One more verse. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Just one verse, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I really just want to concentrate on that very first half of the verse, just the first line. But exhort one another daily. Actually, my Bible has a footnote next to exhort. It has the word encouragement. Boy, we are to encourage one another daily. Let's take a look around you today. Or just think about the people in your life in your life today. Is there someone in your life that needs encouraging? Or that you can encourage? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and do pray, Father, that for that you just continue to knit us together, knit this body of believers together more closely together in love and encouragement. We do pray that you would give us a heart to encourage one another, that you would strengthen your body through this. We pray this in Jesus' name.